all throughout history, people have fought for the right to ascend to an earthly throne. They battle, they play games, they deceive to win these seats of power. One of the most interesting wars for a throne occurred in the Persian Empire. You may remember Persia. Persia is that empire we learned about in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 5 provides us with some pretty vital background information for this story by telling about how the Persians defeated the Babylonians. They set up a kingdom. And Cyrus the Great ruled over the great Persian Empire. But his son, whom you may not have heard of, was named Cambyses, and he succeeded his dad. However, the next succession proved a lot more challenging. Historians, they disagree on all the details, but, but the following account will give you the idea of what happened. When Cambyses died, Darius rose to power and defeated any other contender for the throne. He killed Cyrus's son, Bardia. Despite Darius's authority, there was a lack of knowledge that caused some problems for the new king. Many people in the empire, they didn't know that Bardia had died. So as a result, a pretender to the throne named Gamata proclaimed he was Bardia. Gamata was a magus like the wise men or the magi who visited Jesus and his parents in the Gospel of Matthew. And because Gamata looked like Bardia, the scam worked, at least at first. However, Darius killed him too. A stone carving known as the Behistun inscription features Darius trampling the imposter. After Gamata's death, another man arose claiming to be Bardia. A lot of people wanted to be this guy. And after some short-lived success, he died too. Darius stamped out these con artists, but many argue that Darius himself lacked a legitimate claim to the throne, that he invented the story of the usurper Gamata just because he wasn't supposed to be on the throne himself. It was a lot of drama, a lot of names, hard to pronounce. But in heaven, only one sits on the throne. He reigns solely and unequivocally. Satan once tried to achieve power, but the Lord sent him hurtling to earth like lightning to proclaim God's exclusive right to the throne. While politicians and world leaders battle over earthly thrones, we rest secure in the knowledge that Jesus himself sits on the throne of heaven. We owe the one true God our admiration, our praise, our worship, for he and he alone is Lord of all. And we're going to learn more about the one who sits on the throne right after this. Welcome to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, brought to you by Word of Flame Curriculum and the Pentecostal Publishing House. This podcast encourages adult disciples to think deeply about God's Word, further develop their personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and make a greater commitment to the purpose and plan of God for their lives. Let's dive into today's lesson and explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. Happy New Year to you, God's Word for Life listeners. I hope you had a wonderful Christmas and New Year's Day. You're listening to L.J. Harry. I'm your host, and you're listening to the God's Word for Life Companion Podcast. Today's episode is found in your God's Word for Life student guide, or if you don't have your student guide, that's okay. We're taking a look at the lesson dated January 2nd, 2022, the first lesson of 2022, and it is entitled, He Who Sits on the Throne. If you would turn either in your student guide or in the scriptures, or I will read to you, out of the last book of Scripture, the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 3. John wrote, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. 
and the leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. It's a beautiful snapshot of just how in control of all the world God has always been and always will be. Now, who wrote Revelation? His name was John. To whom did John write Revelation? There were several churches in Asia Minor, which was around the area of modern-day Turkey. And these churches were subjects of the Roman Empire. So these members of these churches, they would understand the power of the throne. None of them likely ever came close to Caesar, but they recognized the force behind his commands. They recognized the imperial might of his army, the wide reach of the Roman Empire, the mighty Roman Empire. The throne represented power. The throne represented life and death. It stood as the ultimate authority throughout one of the world's greatest empires. Roman power seemed to be unprecedented. Who in the world could challenge Caesar? However, the Bible tells us that a greater king, one who humbly manifested himself in flesh, rose to a throne greater than Caesar's. Caesar unwittingly followed his commands, built roads, created security for the spread of the gospel. The lands Rome ruled represented future areas of conquest for a very different type of empire. It would be the empire of the kingdom of God. In Revelation, the great king who sat on the throne of heaven appeared both all-powerful and humble because the one who sat on the throne was the eternal God as well as the lamb sacrificed for the sin of the world. Those who worship Jesus might never gain an audience with Caesar, but they have the right, we have the right to come boldly unto the God's throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. We read about it in Hebrews chapter 4. The mighty throne was also the throne of grace because Jesus had experienced the weaknesses of humanity and he overcame them. The king of kings sits on the throne as ruler of heaven and earth because he conquered both. Now think about this. How difficult would it be to gain an audience with a present-day king or president or prime minister? Probably not extremely easy. And yet we have the opportunity to come to God any day, any time of day, and have an audience with the king of kings who sits on the throne. The majesty of the one who sits on the throne cannot be understated. He is Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He represents one who transcends time and human understanding. And yet this same one, he came to earth. He chose to trade a robe with a glorious train that filled the temple for swaddling clothes and the clothes of a common carpenter. The power of the one who sits on the throne can be seen and that the Alpha and Omega not only wanted to be the beginning and end of all things, he desired to be the author and the finisher of our faith. That is why. Scripture says in Hebrews 12, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And as a result, he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The one who sits on the throne in Revelation gave some hints to his identity. In Revelation 21, he said, it is done. Exactly the same way Jesus said, it is finished. The proclamation of Revelation 21, I'm Alpha and Omega, brings to mind all the times Jesus said, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. Jesus consistently identified himself as the I am. In John chapter 8, Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. 
He directed believers all the way back to the day when Moses had his encounter with a burning bush, where he learned the name Jehovah for the first time. The one on the throne identifies himself as Jesus, a name literally meaning Jehovah, Savior. Jesus identified himself in so many ways. Alpha, Omega, Bread of Life, Light of the World, Good Shepherd, all of those titles, those attributes. But which one of those or which ones has the most personal significance in your life? I'll I'll tell you mine. My favorite name for God, my favorite attribute is Jesus. That's hands down, no questions. But my second favorite name for God is found in Ezekiel 48 when the Bible promises there would be a day when the name of a city would be Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. I take amazing comfort in knowing whatever I need, whenever I need him, he's there. Now, Jesus provided signs all throughout history to identify himself, but people missed it. I don't understand, but they did. In the first century, the Jews made this mistake when Jesus boldly declared, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. He said so in John chapter 2. And the Jews erroneously thought Jesus was speaking about the temple, the building where they worshipped. He wasn't. John added this little commentary in John 2.21. He was speaking about the temple of his body. He proclaimed, he prophesied as early as John 2 that he would be crucified. His body, his physical temple on this earth would be destroyed, but Jesus would rise from the dead after three days, ultimately showing that he was the only temple the Jews or the world would ever need. When the Lord showed John the new Jerusalem, John saw the city's incomparable foundations, beautiful walls, pearly gates, golden streets. In the middle of all the splendor John saw, John saw no temple. And he understood this city doesn't need a temple because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are all the temple it will ever need. Baptized believers needed to be able to look forward to a city with an enduring temple because the Romans sacked Jerusalem in A.D. 70. They destroyed the temple. The writing of Revelation likely occurred after these events. There was no temple for them to worship in. Maybe some Christians joined with their Jewish brethren and hoping the temple would one day be rebuilt. But John revealed this reconstruction, we don't need it. It's not necessary. Jesus is the temple for all believers. What does it mean to you to dwell in Jesus since he is the temple? He's not only the temple, he's also the light. In Revelation, the lamb serves as the light of the city. There's no need for a sun, no need for a moon, no need for Edison lights even. John recognized the illuminating power of the lamb of God. He likely remembered Jesus' proclamation. He wrote about it himself in John chapter 8 when Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Those who walk in the spiritual light of Jesus one day will walk in the light of the lamb. In a sense, those walking in the light of Jesus on this side of glory, we get a glimpse, a glimmer of heaven and a taste, an appetizer of what the new Jerusalem will really be like. Those who desire to partake of this glorious light of God must have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. We read about that in Revelation. The city, this new Jerusalem will have no night, no darkness, no sin, nothing defiled, will be included in the book of life. Anything that works abomination will not be found written there. Anything that makes a lie will not appear in this great book. The light of the Lamb reveals our darkness, reveals our sinful nature. 1 John 1, verses 6-7 through declares, If we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and we do not the truth. But 
If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we want to have fellowship with Jesus throughout eternity, we must walk in the light with him while we live on this earth in time. That's an interesting phrase, walk in the light. What do you think it means to walk in the light? Concerning this Lamb's book of life, God writes our names in the Lamb's book of life. It is amazing that the Almighty God who created the heavens and the earth, spins the planet, superintends the universe, he knows our name. He knows our names enough to write them in the Lamb's book of life. Many names have appeared in the book, but we must avoid our names being blotted out. We read about that in Revelation as well. Just as God enters names in the book, he can also take them out. When we repent, we're baptized in the name of Jesus. We receive the baptism of his Holy Spirit, just as they did in the New Testament church, as evidenced by speaking in other tongues. Our names are in the Lamb's book of life. That is evidence that we have been born again. We have been saved. Angels rejoice at our salvation. They look forward to seeing us in heaven. However, we can walk away from God. We have free will. We must do our very best by the grace of God not to neglect this so great salvation. If we defile ourselves, act abominably, create lies, we find ourselves blotted out of the book, not because God is not gracious, but because God is holy. Jesus promised, he that overcometh the same will be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. We must be overcomers to remain in this book of life. It's not that we can earn our salvation. We certainly can walk away from it. When we are overcomers by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, as talked about in Revelation 12, God brings us back to this Edenic-like paradise in the New Jerusalem. And then there's this tree of life we read about earlier. John described this new Eden as a place with a tree of life bearing fruit and no more curse. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, on either side of the river, was this tree of life. It bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. In this new Jerusalem, believers have eternal life, have healing. No more sickness, no more handicaps, only healing. No more curse, only blessing. But here's the greatest blessing. We, as the redeemed, are going to marvel at the unimaginable brilliance of this holy city, this new Jerusalem, but nothing will compare when we see Jesus face to face. In the Old Testament, the priest said a blessing over the people. We often hear it in Christian weddings today. It's found in Numbers chapter 6. It's known as the priestly blessing, aptly named. It goes like this. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. In this new Jerusalem, this blessing will annihilate every curse ever placed on humanity. Those redeemed will bask in the light of the Lamb as His face shines upon us for all eternity. 
Such a beautiful scripture is found in 1 John chapter 3, when the Bible tells us, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. Even John said, I don't have all the answers for this one, but I do know this. When he appears, we shall be like him, for finally, finally, we will see him as he is. It will be easy to identify the redeemed. The name of Jesus will be on them. Those baptized in the name of Jesus have taken on the name of Christ. That is one reason baptism in the name of Jesus is essential to being a part of this amazing redemption story in the book of Revelation. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, Paul wrote, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We put him on when we're baptized. But it is not enough to just be baptized into him. We have the opportunity and the responsibility to remain in him to remain living a life that brings glory and honor to God. So one day, when we see him, we'll get to see him as he is. We'll be redeemed. Think about all these wonderful promises God has for us should compel us to worship. Should compel us to worship the one who sits on the throne, the one who reigns in all sovereignty. We know he's Lord of all, but it's not enough to know it. We must proclaim it. We can't sit idly by and become stagnant in worship when we have such a great joy set before us. We must lay aside all weight and sin, as the writer of Hebrews declared. We must have a heart of worship. If we find ourselves not worshiping God like we should, we've probably lost sight of the one who sits on the throne. When Isaiah saw him, he said, woe is me, I'm undone. When John saw him, he fell at his feet as one dead. When we see him, we will worship then. So why Should we not worship now? How is worship a gauge of our walk with God? All right, let's wrap this one up. I'll bring you from that holy heavenly city to one on Route 66 to a roadside diner where the taste of a milkshake brought back a lot of memories. And I'll probably get a milkshake today as a result of this story. They recalled a first date at their place after 50 years of marriage brought a smile to their faces. The scent of her perfume years after she had passed away brought a strange mix of joy and sadness as a broken heart beat a bit stronger and tears flowed down a weathered face. The power of nostalgia cannot be overstated. As much as we love moving forward into the future, into a new year, we often find ourselves looking back to the past trying to recapture some magical moments. Our hopes, our longings, our desire... They don't exclusively rest in the future. They also live in our past. In the book of Revelation, we see the Lamb bringing the world back to an Eden-like state like God created it in the very beginning. God does not merely reset the clock. He destroys time. He allows us to live with Him for all eternity. The one who sits on the throne shows His mighty power. And we all long to be there with Him in that blessed day when He calls us home or raptures the church away. Sometimes, however, we look too much into the past Instead of anticipating this glorious future, as powerful and positive as nostalgia is, it can get in the way. We can put so much focus on what our walk with God used to be like. Maybe we remember the first time we prayed and God answered, or the first time we received the gift of His Holy Spirit. As we worshipped God in another language, as tears flowed down our faces and we worshipped God in that supernatural way. We remember the Lord giving us a much-needed word and inspiring us just at the moment we needed it. Somewhere along the way, as life does, the light of the Lamb just grew dimmer 
in our eyes because we put things in front of God. We worried more about earth than eternity. We still shone just as brightly as always, but our blinders prevented us from really seeing him. We must make a conscious effort. Let's put God back on the throne of our lives. He reigns on the throne in heaven. But where he reigns in our heart, that really is up to us. He reigns supremely as God of the universe, but we alone decide if we allow him to reign in our hearts. True worship removes everything else, dethrones everyone else except him. We must remove the idols that sometimes take Jesus' place. That's a great resolution, not just for this year, but for the rest of our lives. Let's remove the distractions. Let's remove the clutter. Let's remove any idol that we put on in front of or beside of Jesus. Sometimes that idol is us. We have to remove ourselves from the throne by humbly inviting Jesus back onto the throne of our lives. Let's coronate him as the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and King of our lives and put him back on the throne through our worship. Not just our singing, not just when we raise our hands, but our full, wholehearted devotion, our worship that cleanses us of pride, cleanses us of selfishness, that removes the idols and the distractions and the clutter and abdicates any place of power and makes sure God, who sits on the throne of heaven, is also the one who sits on the throne in our heart. Let's pray that prayer as we open up this brand new year and let's ask God to help us to forgive us if we have put anyone or anything else, including ourselves, on the throne and ask God to reign once again on the throne in our hearts and our lives. Jesus, I thank you today. Thank you for this lesson. Thank you, Lord, for what you have taught us through it. I pray if there's anyone or anything on the throne, if there's any idol, any distraction, any pursuit, any passion, any pleasure, I worship besides you or above you, please forgive me. Please show me what it is, God. If there's any clutter, if I myself am on the throne in my own heart, in my own life, please forgive me. I pray you and you alone would reign on the throne. I know you reign on the throne of heaven. I pray you would reign on the throne in my heart. I ask you today for all of the listeners who are listening to this episode, Lord, that you would help us, forgive us, and we place you and ask you, rather, to take the rightful place, your rightful place, back on the throne in our hearts. We worship you, Jesus. In this new year, we will worship you purer than before. We will worship you, Lord, with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. I look forward to the day and I get to see you as you are. I want to be in right relationship with you now and then. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Hey, thanks so much, God's Word for Life listeners. I truly do hope you're having a happy new year so far. If you have not yet clicked subscribe, please click on that button. You'll know every time a new episode drops and click share. That way you can share this episode and this entire podcast with somebody who will be blessed and benefit by it, help deepen their discipleship and their relationship with God as a result. Check out all of our resources at PentecostalPublishing.com. All of our God's Word for Life resources, as, as far as other resources, the website is chock full, brim full, plum full, depending on what part of the country or world you come from full of resources that will help you in your relationship with God, your discipleship, and being able to share your faith with other people. So check it out, PentecostalPublishing.com. Next week, we're going to open up a brand new series called Standing on the Promises of God, and we're going to go all the way from Revelation back to the beginning, back to Genesis, back to Abraham, 
We're going to look at Genesis chapter 12. We're going to look at a lesson dated January 9th entitled Receiving the Promise. I'm looking forward to sharing that with you next week. And always look forward to learning and living out God's Word for Life. Thank you for listening to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, where together we explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. If you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you are looking for other Bible study tools and resources to encourage you in your walk with God, visit us today at pentecostalpublishing.com.